I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Aloha, spooky nerds, and welcome to Talking Strange, a paranormal pop culture show with the Den of Geek Network, where we discuss the entertainment of the unexplained. I am your host, Aaron Sagers, journalist, author, researcher of all things weird, currently can be seen on Travel Channel and Discovery Plus's Paranormal Caught on Camera, and we've got season five right around the corner of that, so keep an eye out. Today, I'm very excited. I'm always excited. I say that a lot. I'm excited, but it's true. I am excited. But I'm excited about the new Discovery Plus shock docs that are going to be streaming, both of them, on Friday, February 18th, because these are cases that are not only iconic within the field of ufology, they are deeply kind of personal stories. They're rooted in in people, not just seeing some sort of lights in the sky. It is, they are human dramas, really. And I think that the people involved in them, I find them very believable. Now, the two shock docs, They're called Alien Abduction, the Betty and Barney Hill story, and Alien Abduction, Travis Walton. These are the most famous reports of close encounters of the fourth kind. And in these documentaries, these mysterious alleged abductions, they, in the shock docs, they weave archival footage together. They include these sometimes disturbing interviews, eerie experiences, and recounted by eyewitnesses and by victims. They utilize exclusive audio tapes. They include fascinating close encounter reports. And even decades after these stories became part of the mainstream, the documentaries include well-preserved evidence and add modern forensic technology. Now, at the heart of these two shock docs is my guest today. Now, he is a consulting producer on the Shock Docs. He's a UFO expert. He's a former federal criminal investigator. He's been on a mission for years to uncover the truth behind the country's most infamous UFO sightings. He is currently host of Discovery Plus's UFO Witness. He has been on Ghosts of Morgan City, Factor Faked over on the Sci-Fi Network. And he's someone that I've been happy to know for more than a decade now, I think. So, without further ado, let me bring in Mr. Ben Hansen. Hey, Aaron. hey Ben. How's it going? It's going very well. I, uh, I'm, I'm happy to have you here on these, these early episodes of what we are now calling Talking Strange, this paranormal yeah. pop culture podcast. And uh, wow. how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Super busy. You know, like uh, we, we uh, waited through COVID and ho- hoping that it's over soon, but the TV production stuff found a way to, to um, you know, work through it. So we we film. We're actually filming a second season of UFO Witness, and then these two shock docs were like, man, kind of right in the heart of it. Um, yeah. When they wanted these done, <laughs> so we were really so, lucky to get that get that out. And and let me just say for anybody that's going to be viewing this as opposed to listening to it right now, it does look like Ben Hansen 
is speaking to us in a dark, dark room. Oh wait, now I see him. For a second, your 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 mic was or your uh, video was out. It for it looked like you were a UFO witness that was shrouded in the darkness. Am, am uh, I moving now? Am I live speed? Does it look now like I see you. Yes. Now we see your face. Um, okay. And you know, it is it is funny. I was looking up when we were going to have this chat. I was just looking up when you and I first started chatting, and it was back in the sci-fi days. You were working back. I think it was SCIFI before a CFI uh, for fact or fake. And at that point I was a reporter before I inevitably started working as a producer and host for sci-fi. Uh, yeah. So I, I think it was 2010. That's probably what it was, right? That's when fact or fake was announced. And I think we probably met at that New York, um, uh, Christmas party that, that they, they put on. Right? Yeah. Yeah. There was, there was a press event. There was, and then there was the early days where it would be like, uh, ben Hansen and Factor Fake team, uh, Josh Gates, and then uh, Ghost Hunters. Uh, you know, like Amy Bruni, and then yeah, probably yeah. Uh, Jason Hawes would be there. It was, it was just like, and now everything old is new again because everybody's <laughs> back together. Basically, it's the same same family basically. Yeah, it's, it's you know, like if I look back at that and said, and someone told me, you know, you would still be doing shows like this, and they would still be relevant because a lot of that stuff could be trendy and it did go away for a little bit, but to have networks that totally embrace it and, and not only bring it back, but bring back some of the same people who are doing it, I think it's awesome. You know, cause I, I thought, oh, they're going to want, you know, some new face or something like that. No, we, we like the family. So yeah. It's pretty fun. Yeah. It felt like there was a bit of a programming blip for a while where, uh, around 2012, 2013, the shows just started going away, except for yeah. just a core couple shows. And then here we are, here we are. It is it is big again. And yes, specifically within the world of uh, UFOs, it seems even more relevant and timely yeah. than ever before. Absolutely. And well, with that, you know, just as far as you know, your credentials, your bona fides, if you will. For anybody that is not familiar with you, I don't know who that would be, but anyone that's not familiar with you, talk a little bit about how you got into this this element, uh, this this sphere professionally uh, and personally. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it, it goes back to probably when I was like five years old, and and I you know really um, was fascinated by space. I was one of the kids that wanted to telescope et was a big influence on me because the idea that there could be extraterrestrials and you know et was a friendly one and then along came close encounters which was really frightening and then in the end it was friendly but it was it was just the whole idea that that we could be visited i started you know cutting out newspaper clippings and the 80s were a big time for that um there there was a lot but all we had was the newspaper and I started collecting and then I started reading books. And so I kind of put that away, you know, in my teen years because it it did it had a stigma to it that it doesn't now. Kids now can be like, oh, yeah, I believe in UFOs and it's totally fine. But like when uh, when I had my friends come over and stuff, they they're like, what? That's weird. You know, you believe in this. And um, so anyways, that's kind of my informal beginnings into it. And then how did I get into it now? Well, I. I, I'd like to say that I'm lucky that I knew a lot of nerdy stuff. Mm-hmm. I knew a lot of 
history, which is what UFOs is really about, is history. And X-Files is popular in high school, so you can see the thread here. Yeah, the TV shows really did influence me, but I knew it wasn't real. There wasn't an X-Files. Um, but it, it helped me look into law enforcement and, you know, working for the FBI for a bit. Um, and then an opportunity came along that the um, Sci-Fi Channel, back back when we were on that network, to put together a show. And, and uh, they, they were like, wait a sec. So you have a background in, in the investigation stuff, but you actually into this. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of a closet paranormal UFO guy. And that's kind of how it started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and it's it's funny because for me as well, having grown up in the 80s and loving this stuff, there was that personal dip for me as well where I, I didn't necessarily stop loving it. I just kind of stopped really embracing that passion. Uh-huh. I think maybe it was that moment where you tell yourself it's time to put away childish things and then be, <laughs> you know, be like a, a an adult or a, you know, cool teenager or whatever. And then you realize, no, no, it is actually cool to be into, to be the yeah. nerd. You know? Who knew that adults were like this? If your yeah. child self could look into the future and be like, wait, you're going to still be doing this and you're going to be yeah. talking about getting, you know, like your, your career is going to be based around weird things you shouldn't believe in right now. Yeah. It's like, Hey, hey, mom and dad. Yeah. All of the, all of the magazines and all the weird stuff that I was collecting mysteries of the, uh, of the unknown from time life. Uh, all of that stuff, actually it was job training for me. Uh, That's right. right. With these two shock docs and I'm going to, I'm going to play a clip in a moment, but just in a general sense, why do you think these two stories, the Travis Walton story and the Betty and Barney Hill story, why are they so significant and why should they be paired together to both premiere on February 18th on Discovery Plus? So that's a great question because the production company that um, was putting this together had kind of reached out to me um, knowing that I was in the space and they had already come up with the two cases they wanted to do and had discussed it with the network. And they're the exact same two cases I've always said are the most well-documented. And I think evidence, um, UFO alleged abductions. And I, I say the word uh, alleged abductions or the phrase, because when you talk to Travis, as you know, he doesn't even like to really term it as an abduction it would appear and everything that you you learn from the case that they were not from this world but as an abduction in the general sense it's nothing like the the, the movie was uh, the yeah. movie fire in the sky right and and so there's that element of it but i tell i tell travis and i say this a lot it's not don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that he was lucky the way it turned out. I, I would not wish that upon anyone. It was very frightening, but he was lucky in that he had six other witnesses. Um, you had law enforcement involvement. You had, um, you know, some physical evidence that we're able to see then and now, which a lot of cases don't have any of. And so you have one guy, I mean, imagine if Travis was alone and it's like, yeah, I saw this thing and it came down and how long have I been gone? I'm back now. Who would believe it? Yeah. Yeah. Right. But you had all this stuff that documented with law enforcement and the official um, account that really helps so that we heard about the story. And then on Betty Barney Hill, 
um, it was set in a time period in the, the early 60s that instantly it was going to draw attention, you know, as well, because they were um, a high-profile couple. He was a chairperson working for civil rights. This is not someone you would expect to come forward and to make up a crazy story of sighting a UFO. He's very, very skeptical. So I like that part of it. But what happened after is the reluctant witnesses come forward and um, it doesn't have the, the total number of witnesses as Travis's does, but you have hypnosis and Bud Hopkins and one of the, it, it really was the first widely, um, I guess, uh, shared and pronounced story of an abduction. Because up until that point, it, it was a lot of sightings and some kind of fringe topics of people saying that they went to Venus, but not like abductions. Yeah. So uh, that in a nutshell, I think the two of them together, uh, investigated by some of the, the same researchers, the iconic, you know, Hynek and Bud Hopkins and all those that um, I, I think we're left now with history still scratching our heads. You know, what yeah. happened? Yeah, both Project Blue Book and NICAP invest, uh, ex- uh-huh. investigated the, the, the Hill story. Yep. Yeah, yep. they, they and, did. Um, and of course, Travis has happened well after, um, you know, Blue Book closed, but you, you had people like, um, NICAP and, um, um, uh, I'm blanking on the, uh, Lorenz, uh, the Lorenz, um, the LARP, um, not LARP, <laughs> um, yeah, that, that group, the, yeah, yes. it, 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 you, you can tell that I just came off an early flight this morning, so I apologize, but <laughs> you had these people who, um, that we cite now, you know, yeah. as the, the, the most, um, you know, like dedicated to scientific method and everything that they, um, APRO. Um, yeah. So the most dedicated towards, you know, the scientific method and things of the, of the time that we're trying to, um, in fact, the government cites these organizations, you know, and they cite them uh, because you had, you know, people like Donald Kehoe, you know, running, you know, uh, NICAP and stuff. And so anyways, um, well respected as, as respected as they could be in their time period. And, and they, they didn't just take, whatever case that came along. And so this has persisted. You have Travis Walton, 1975, and Betty Barney Hill, 1961. And um, it really kind of set the stage now for um, a lot of TVs, a lot of movie movie and TV shows that came afterwards that put that um, in the public consciousness. What does a gray look like? What is this? What is that? But see, none of that really existed before that. The thing that always blows me away with these with, with this case with Betty and Barney Hill. First off, as you mentioned, these are people that were active in their community and church, but as a, an interracial couple in the early 60s, they did not want undue attention, maybe attention for pursuing civil rights, but not the, the attention that this kind of thing, the stigma that this would bring to them, and yet their story became public not entirely because of their their choice, right? Yeah, it um, 
it, it, it's a distraction for what they were trying to accomplish. And it doesn't help, especially that time period, because, you know, they're, they're having, um, you know, organization and serious meetings and, and he's already in the press for, for the, um, participation in civil rights. And so if you're to attach a byline or something onto that, it's like, Oh, an alleged alien abductee, it didn't help, you know? And so that they didn't want that. And the regression tapes, the, the medical exams, all that stuff, um, they actually did come out and at least, um, I don't quote me on this, but at least they went to one, maybe two different public meetings they were invited to speak at. Church so gatherings. So it wasn't like, I think. What's that? Yeah, yeah I, I, it was. It was like two different church gatherings, one in private, uh-huh. and then one a little bit more public. If I if if I recall. Yeah. So they they had come out. It wasn't like they they were completely silent about it, but then uh, there was a reporter that got wind of it. And without talking to them, kind of wrote it up and talked to the doctor and, and, you know, some things there. And so it was released the way I understand the story without their their involvement or permission. And that's kind of what let everybody else know what happened here. Right. And then the phone's ringing off the hook. Yeah. Everyone wants to get involved. And so it's from the beginning, especially Barney was very hesitant. Barney. Um, you know, uh, Betty came back from that and become, became obsessed and it, it really strained the relationship because he like stopped talking about it. And he was in complete denial until he was suffering some physiological effects, you know, and, and uh, not feeling well and everything. So like, okay, well, let's, let's go in and, and talk to this um, psychologist. And um, uh, I, I think he was a psychiatrist actually. And it went in and started the sessions with him. And, and little by little, he came to accept that something happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how it went. Yeah. The, and when you listen to those, that audio, every I, even, even though I've heard it multiple times, and I, I think you do a nice job of presenting it in the Shock Talks, you know, I've, I've spent a, a career interviewing people both as – a true news journalist, I mean, a, a serious news journalist and then entertainment news journalist and then paranormal stuff. I spent an entire career talking to people, interviewing people, gauging people's emotions. And these mm-hmm. just sound raw. They sound believable. These are people that are put under, but you're getting this like this disturbing emotion come coming yeah. out of them. Yeah, and I think that's something you could really hang your hat on because at the end of the day, even if you don't believe um, what happened in the craft, you have a couple that um, the the doctor took great care to isolate them and not include, uh, you know, like way down the hallway so they couldn't hear what the other one was saying for multiple sessions before he brought them together and started to um, let them remember. You know, he would put a... Uh, post-hypnotic suggestion, they'd forget it because it would be too traumatizing, you know, to have that consciousness of what they just saw. So little by little, he let them remember it. But um, both of them, like you said, Barney's, if nothing else, I think you can hang your hat on the fact that um, when they're legitimately in um, a deeper state of hypnosis, what comes out is raw. Mm -hmm. And it's not like, um, there's someone prone to faking that anyways. 
But if you knew their personality, according to, you know, their niece and the family and everyone who knows them, that they, they would not sit there, especially Barney, and put on a show. Remember that he didn't want this attention. Yeah. And so whatever it was, it deeply impacted him. And it was it was like a PTSD thing. Some of the biggest criticisms about or nays- things that naysayers say about this case is that one, that over the couple years before they went through the hypnosis is that, you know, that the dreams that Betty was having was sort of leaking into into Barney's mind and the influencing him, essentially. There's that. But then also the this idea that they were influenced by an Outer Limits, the sort of Twilight Zone um, TV show at the time, because there was an mm-hmm. episode where there was an alien with strange eyes. And meanwhile, the the creature that they're discussing having encountered on board has wraparound eyes, what we very much associate with the grays, as you said earlier. Uh What do you say to that? Uh, To me, look, I'll I'll say up front, it sounds like a stretch, but what's your reaction when you're hearing those, those two things that are used to discount this, this story? Well, it's, it's always reasonable. Uh, That's one of the most reasonable theories I've heard. I mean, aside from the ridiculousness of like, Philip class and him coming out like with Travis's story and, you know, changing every, every week, you know, they saw Jupiter, they saw this, that at least somebody, you know, proposing a theory is like trying to look at, in fact, they said the same thing about Travis because right. the movie, right. The, uh, that came out about Betty and Barney Hill starring, um, Terrence Mann, was it? It was, um, uh, no, James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones. James, James Earl Jones was playing Barney. And that came out that summer before, I think, Travis's event. And so, like, oh, well, Travis must have seen this, and Travis must have this and that. And so it is a, a quite a stretch. The, the key here um, that people don't really focus on is even if we're not quite sure what happened in the missing time element. There was missing time. It, it, it seems pretty well documented. Um, according to their accounts, something happened there and they were fully awake and fully conscious when they had the very, very close encounter of the craft itself and it coming down. And, um, so to me, at least in my mind, the only real debatable thing, if we are to assume they're telling the truth, which I think, they are based on um, all the investigation was done post. Then what happened on on aboard the ship? Mm-hmm. And so it is reasonable to say to bring up those things and say, well, they perhaps contaminated this dream and that. And that's why I really like Doctor Simon's. If you read the book, the uh, Interrupted Journey, and and you you read the foreword of it, he didn't want this attention either, but he was very objective, and he even allows that possibility at first i think he says i thought that maybe you know her her dreams she was telling to him or something rather but he's like look at the end of the day they experienced something real mm-hmm. and um you know i i think that's at least a good starting point that, that we can we could say they saw saw something incredible even that very difficult to say it wasn't it was from this world and then go from there to, okay, well, let's just work out what happened aboard the ship. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I can't say for a hundred percent certainty myself that all their details are accurate. Although that much care was taken to keep them separated 
and there's parts of Barney's story that are completely separate for things that she didn't know. So how she could, how could she have told him those things in her, you know, sleep talking right. or whatever. So, yeah. And, and the trauma that it sounds like they're experiencing in those regression sessions. It's one thing if you, if you tell me a story or, you know, if, if a, a, a close confidant, a partner or whatever, tells me a story and tells me over and over and over again, I might believe the story. I might even incorporate it into my own memories, but this level of trauma and emotion, not a psychologist, but it seems like that that is pretty intense for Barney to be feeling to experiencing what he's saying he experienced uh, mm-hmm. just by that influence that, you know, something that is mentioned in the shock docs that I don't know. I, I hadn't thought about this before, even though I, I knew this piece of information, it didn't click with me. Barney was married uh, previously. He had two children, two sons. Was there ever any interviews conducted with these two sons of Barney Hill uh, from the previous marriage, and did they did did their father discuss this incident with them? Not that I know. Um, you know, I was I was with the the production um, for I it was in the heart in the, the right in the middle of COVID, so I yeah. didn't have to go out to New Hampshire with them, and a lot of it was done remotely and from the archival footage. So it was a really hard time to travel. I'm, I'm not sure if they if they followed that up or tracked it down. To be honest. I don't even know if he had a relationship with them. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it would be good to know though, because you would think like they did with Betty's family, they told all the kids they yeah. would go up there summers afterwards and bring him to the spot. And for many months after they were kind of obsessed with retracing their route to find out where they were exactly. And the mile marker when, when they remember hearing the beeping noise and then where they reappeared. And so that part of the family was very well integrated into it. When the news went global, we, we spoke a moment ago about the reporter, John Luttrell. So he took it public in 1965. Yes, mm-hmm. they had done a couple talks about it. So this, he didn't, he didn't warn them he was doing this. And it seemed like there was someone from their inner circle. I don't, I don't know who it is. Someone from their inner circle that leaked information. But without this, this story would not have been told on the global scale. So there's this ethical kind of quandary here about it's ultimately, I think we're pleased that this story got out here because it it gives us something to examine and look at. But it is also a story of two people and their private life. So do you view Luttrell in this story as a villain or maybe not a hero, but a, a anti-hero, a person that did something good. How do you wrap your, your brain around Latrell? And, you know, now we have, you know, uh, some of Betty's family that's still around. How do, how do they view him? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Kathleen, she, I, I think they just kind of accepted it is what it is. Uh, reporters are going to do what they're going to do, <laughs> you know, <laughs> No offense, but no, they're, they're, they're going to, if a story's good and he didn't need their permission, it wasn't him, you know, violating a a confidentiality. The story as he heard it, you know, he's like, I, if I remember correctly, there was something where he was like, if I'm going to go forward with this, I don't remember. I I don't want to speculate. I I forget the exact details of how it went out, but 
Um, you're right. And, and it really parallels that little pivot point, the same thing with Travis Walton, in that um, if Travis hadn't gone missing, even with the seven people that were involved in the logging crew, it would be a fantastical story, and you might hear a little bit about it, but it was the fact that he went missing that got the police involved, that got the search party involved, international attention, because Travis, if he had been, you know, let's say he went on a one-hour ride and came back, and he was all fine, walked into town. He didn't want this out. It was not mm-hmm. his doing. And he didn't want to be that guy. And so both stories were kind of propelled um, forward into the international attention um, against their, the will of, of those involved. Yeah, I mean, I do view the, the Hill story a little bit different as far as the actions of John Luttrell, because they were not even though they were active in their community, they weren't public figures. So there's not a lot of news interest in saying this, this couple said they saw something. Maybe, I I don't know. I mean, with Travis's case, it was a missing persons, you know, situation. So that, that's a little bit more of public interest, but, but that's a, that's perhaps, I mean, the, the thing that Latrell did do and is that he also had, and he had interviewed other people, correct that that kind of corroborated what betty and barney said they saw we just we never really got to that before right we that didn't make it out into the public sphere yeah and and i do have to jump on another interview here in uh, about five minutes it starts but i wanted to add um what you were you were saying that there are other people interviewed there are other um the corroborating evidence so it's kind of hard to compartmentalize any of these cases and say um, which, which the skeptics do, and it's, it's fine, but, you know, they'll say, okay, well, what about the hypnosis sessions and all this? And then they want to apply that to the whole case and say, well, then it wasn't true. Okay, well, then you still have to deal with physical evidence. You have to still deal with um, the missing time amounts, the conscious, you know, recollections, and the fact that we're still in both of these cases um, – I did uh, on my show UFO Witness. We looked into the case, and I'm not going to give it away for those. You know, you can go watch the UFO Witness <laughs> episode too. But we borrowed some of the the uh, footage and, and uh, my recounting of what happened with Betty's dress, and with and it is not definitive proof by any means. It's a it's a speculation, but circumstantially what Betty described is the examination that took place. And she said the long needle was inserted and they were doing some sort of pregnancy test. What was found on Betty's dress, um, that Kathleen, her niece and the dress is up there at the university and nobody had seen these stains before the ones that I discovered with a, a black light. Right. And we had it tested, you know? And so you can see kind of the results of that puzzle puzzle piece that I think, helps support her story that something happened because she put that dress away and never wore it again, you know? And so, um, we borrow from witness testimony. We borrow from what we can do with trace evidence, which, you know, is so hard to do so many years after, but when you put it all together, give it a likelihood of percentage that I, I do believe something very unusual happened in both of these cases. All right. So that's some really interesting evidence and genetic results that came out of the Hill abduction story. But I actually want to shift more to the story of Travis Walton, as we're also seeing in the Discovery Shock doc, also dropping on February 18th, along with the Hill alien abduction story. Before we get into that, 
Let's actually throw to a clip from Alien Abduction, the Travis Walton story. It's one of the greatest alien abduction stories of all time. In 1975, six men in Northeast Arizona witnessed their crewmate kidnapped by a UFO. I hollered out, they got him. But was Travis Walton really taken by aliens? Or did his crewmates have something to do with his disappearance? The sheriff kept telling me, if you just tell us where the body is, we're going to all go home. The six men who reportedly eyewitnessed the incident have taken lie detector tests. The story became an international sensation, inspiring books and a Hollywood movie. And it ripped apart a small town. Just doesn't sound like a true tale to me. What happened to Travis Walton that fateful night? What torture was he subjected to? 45 years later, shocking new evidence reveals the true story behind Fire in the Sky, the abduction of Travis Walton. Well, Ben, I think right there that clip sets up a lot about this this shock doc. And it also, it's kind of right there, but I'm curious from your perspective, what are the big differences between the Travis uh, Walton story and Betty and Barney Hill? Well, um, you know, as, as I was saying, like Travis, he... I wouldn't say, I was just talking to him yesterday and, you know, every time I say this, I don't want to say that he was lucky to be in that position because I wouldn't call it luck. It was quite a a bad experience for him, but he did have six other witnesses, betting Barney Hill. It was just the two of them, um, you know, and, and there was not at the time, you know, anything as far as a formal investigation, law enforcement. So the circumstances around when Travis went missing, it, it turned quickly into a murder investigation. Right. You can't come down from the mountains and, and sort of like, well, hey, don't know how to say this, but our friend is missing, maybe dead. And, you know, and the police are like, what are you what are you talking about? And so it turns into a murder investigation and polygraphs. And so you have a lot of the official documentation backing everything up that happened around the disappearance, the return. And then you have all these witnesses. So uh, I've, I've studied a lot about. Uh, hoaxers and why they do what they do. The truth is most people are not very good liars. People tend to be able to lie initially, um, but over the long run, you know, when you're, when you're looking at, you know, so many years gone by as well, that their stories are consistent. Generally it starts to fall apart in the first couple of months. And then you know, there's, there's infighting and then someone comes out and presents proof that it was, it was hoaxed. And even though some of the, um, how should I put this lightly? some of the crew members, um, that I've dealt with over time have wished the focus was more on them because there are jealousies involved. There's definitely jealousies and they're coming out with their own versions of like, I think that, you know, maybe they were there for me or I was more involved. The true facts of the case have never been um, disputed. No one's ever denied it because they know there were, there were six other people there with them. 
And, and that I think is, is one of the great uh, strengths of this case. Yeah. And well, for me personally, the fact that this case, it, it happened a couple of years before I was born, but it, it seems like the, the abduction case that I most grew up with, I, I, I would think that um, it was more present in my, in, in my upbringing because uh, also because of the movie fire in the sky. Uh, I was more aware of that as a kid. But with this story, I mean, you said it like you have living eyewitnesses. Unfortunately, both the Hills uh, have passed away at this point. Mm-hmm. And neither of these people, neither of these groups of people were seeking attention outright. As far as the phenomena that they experienced, what are some of the other differences? Because with the Hill case, it, they they at times felt like they were I mean, they were being followed but it was sort of a random follow. They were just sort of selected on the road and then uh-huh. taken up for experimentation. Um, compare and contrast that to the entities that Travis reports having uh, encountered. That, that's a great question. Cause I, I guess if we were to assign motive to these visitors, in the Betty Barney Hill case, it seemed more opportunistic in that um, they were just in the right place or wrong, wrong place, wrong time. And they're isolated. You know, you're, you're up there in New Hampshire and it's a a very rural road. Not many people passing at all. Uh, Incidentally, (laughs) the, the mountains that they were in uh, are are the white mountains in New Hampshire, which is the same, the, the white mountains of Arizona. I thought that was a little interesting where, where Travis was taken. That is interesting. Yeah, we kind of joked about it when I pointed out to Travis and I'm like, did they just get, you know, they're like, hey, we had success here in 61. (laughs) And then they got confused with the map and ended up in Arizona the next time. (laughs) But the in Travis's story, he's kind of changed his perspective over the years because at first he thought that perhaps they were there to um, that. Maybe they saw the vehicle coming and so they came ahead of it and and uh, came down to hover in intercepting them. But now he honestly thinks that the, the word abduction is, it's a relative term that maybe this wasn't an abduction. This was more like an ambulance rescue because he wasn't supposed to be there. They may have come down to observe something, maybe some mechanical problems, whatever they came down low. And when he walked up to the craft, he talks about from the time that he heard it rumbling, he stands up because like something's going to happen. And that he may have like created a grounding effect because he's the tallest thing now. And at a discharge of some sort of static comes out, not like the movie where it's purposely beamed and, and risen up. He was actually blasted backwards and it may have been a static discharge from the propulsion or something. So they see him on the ground, pick him up. And then that fits with what happens on board where he, he ends up with some, some sort of thing on his chest, like maybe trying to heal him. You know, and so that's different than the Hills case where they were very communicative. Uh, the beings were kind of walking them through what they were doing. Um, you know, the testing that to both of them with uh, reproductive uh, systems and stuff like that was actually quite terrifying. Whereas in, in Travis's case, he was not probed. He didn't have, you know, things put into his eye. He didn't wake up in a cocoon. And, and if you watch the movie... And, and then see what actually happened. It's far more believable. 
um, that, that you see that he probably was not being examined as a specimen, but they were probably trying to heal him. And so that changes the dynamic completely. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's a really enjoyable movie, Fire in the Sky. Just it it veers off so much from the experience that Travis talks about in his book and, and is talked about in the shock doc that will be seen in a uh, few days. But the and and the other kind of notable thing is that whereas the Hills had this experience with with what we came to know as the gray aliens, mm-hmm. um, Travis does encounter them as well as a another species of of alien yeah and that's completely left out of the um the the movie and to his credit you know uh tracy torme as, as you talk to him uh he wasn't totally in favor of how they rewrote the script because they wanted it all terror and it kind of ends that way you know terror 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 scary aliens but um, what ended up happening, and, and you know, people see or read the book or watch the the documentary, is that um, he did uh, encounter three, uh, for all intents and purposes, humans. You know, blonde hair, blue eyes, leading him out of the ship, seeming like they're trying to help him, as if they're trying to comfort him. So you have this interaction that would suggest that they were working with the Greys in coordination which we hear a lot, a lot from um, alleged abductees. And then, uh, but that was not really a concept then. And then you have um, Betty Barn Hill who did see kind of variations, taller, you know, what would you describe as grays, but within that variety. Um, so different visitors, perhaps different intentions. Um, yeah, and, and then the way that it was perceived later, I think both of them, sets of, of, of groups went through PTSD, definitely. It's a scary, scary event. But I think both of them have also come to terms with it. And um, and you see in the end that the therapy really helped Betty and Barney Hill. And it was more exciting to Betty. Betty was really obsessed after that and wanted more of it. <laughs> Whereas Barney's like, okay, I'm okay with it, but no more, no more. Well, and there was a reluctance with Travis as well to talk publicly about this for a, a while. I know that he did, he made appearances on interviews, uh, you know, interview shows and he did Larry King and the, I guess there was sort of that, that very famous kind of segment with Larry King and then um, uh, so Philip uh, class. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it took a while for, for Travis to start appearing at events and talking about this. I don't know if this was, I, I, I don't know if it was 2010 when he first started, but I first met him around yeah. 2010 at a at phenomenology, a paranormal event in uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Is that about when he first it started? Was. It was exactly. And I, I don't necessarily want to take credit for this. It may have been coincidental, but he'd always had his book out there, but he had been in, I want to say hiding, but laying yeah. low for a very long time. And when my show Factor Fake started, um, we wouldn't have taken on this case anyways, because we had to start with video or photo. But when I first met him through a mutual friend, he had not been out of the site for seven years. Um, I think he'd taken a film crew from, you know, I don't know, 60 minutes, some sort of film crew. But he hadn't been out there for a very long time. And um, he and I, it was kind of like a Wild West down. Like he knew that I came from a show called Factor Faked. My buddy's like, hey, you can trust Ben. He's not here to to judge you. 
But then I was like, here's the guy that came from the movie Fire in the Sky, which is way out there. And I hadn't read the book yet. So we sat down at a Mexican restaurant and there was there was not a lot of like jumping right into feeling comfortable. We, we like filling each other out. But by the time he took me up to the site, um, I saw a change in him starting to open up. And this very humble guy, as you know, when you meet him, he he's just like not the type to go out there and and to really tell the whole world. And he doesn't like talking about it, but he came to terms with it. So about that time is when I started seeing him going on the circuits um, and, and really kind of embracing, well, this is, I can't hide from this. This is my story. Um, and so he's kind of gone like that over the years. Yeah. And, you know, this is inserting my own subjectivity. Yeah. Having interacted with Travis, I find him to be a very kind man and I find him to be very believable. And, and when he tells his story, it's not, as if he's drumming it up for dramatic effect when he's telling it, it's, it's just him kind of relaying what he remembers based on my experiences with him mm-hmm. for your, from your approach, knowing him, it, it's, it's certainly fascinating because you do have this, this living experience or someone that can talk about it, but how does that impact you as a documentarian, as someone, as a researcher, because it is difficult to maintain that, objectivity as well it is and and i've always said this to people when you get into the ufo subject it's kind of this continuum and this line and and if you were to take like on the far left side let's say you have people who who have seen uh, lights in the sky okay and it's like i I don't know how to explain this and then if you go to the far extreme of it you have people who are talking about dna hybridization i've mothered you know hybrid and children and excuse me, and there's this agenda. So it doesn't mean that that any or all of that is true in the middle, but it, it's sort of this progression to where like, if you believe that we have been possibly visited, then the next step would be, is it possible there's been physical contact and communication and then abductions, right? And it goes along that. And Travis's was the first case for me where I had an open mind to be like, okay, well, yeah, sure. Why, why can't they hover and then some something come out or someone go up on board the ship? And that was a leap. But I felt like if I believe Travis's story is real, which I do, and it was a real experience, that there has to be the possibility that others have had that. But how yeah. many? Right? And so to take, for example, um, the Pascagoula case with Calvin Parker in Mississippi. Mm-hmm very very strange and if if you were to just to tell that story to me without having met the man or not knowing travis's story i'd say it's a wild tale it's sci-fi there's no way these floating kind of robots with pincher arms come down and pull you into a ship but knowing the strange elements of travis's and then going to to interview calvin he's almost a, a doppelganger to travis in the demeanor the way that things went down and how he he laid low the honesty the true salt of the earth type of rural kind of guy that not not that they're not incapable of lying but when you know humans and you interrogate a lot of people victims and stuff of other things it i i believe that something happened to him as well so i mean you're right it is hard because each case influences another 
but you have to try and isolate that specific incident and say, well, what you don't have, you know, that's different than, than these or have um, makes each case unique. Yeah. And I, with that, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think that, I think that can be applied to, I know it's a separate topic, but even when I listen to people tell ghost stories, there's, there's a range of, of types of stories that people tell, but the ones I always find the most compelling are the ones that people don't want to tell the ones that yes. <laughs> they're very kind of quiet about it and they're not anxious to share it. Uh, that's, that's kind of when I'm, uh, my ears perk up a little bit more. I do want to, I, I want to ask you, I want to move on in a moment just to UFO witness and, and your cases, but I, I do want to mention the moment of truth. There was a show on, I believe, Fox. Uh, mm-hmm. Travis was on it. He took a polygraph test. He failed. Now, this was uh, not the first time Travis had taken polygraph test, and certainly the other, uh, other loggers involved in this case all took polygraph tests. And But as far as this moment, because people will bring it up, and then people will say, well, yeah, but then this guy failed the polygraph test on this reality show moment of truth. So I just didn't know if coming from your background, if that's something that you can address and what your thoughts are on that. Um, yeah, sure. I've heard Travis talk about it and and I, I probably don't know enough of the details surrounding it to get too specific, but sure. um, from what I understand, you know, I mean, according to him, there was, there was something with the polygrapher itself, the, the, the shocking um, way that that was set up, we we don't honestly know if it wasn't contrived to, um, you know, that it was truly an exploration of the truth, or the, if if the end was already decided before. I have no idea, but mm-hmm. I do know about polygraphs, and I can say that having taken several of them, <laughs> they are um, not fun at all, and the the white paper studies on them as much as here's the catch 22 because you've heard me bolstering the polygraph and saying that it's, it's, um, you know, indicative of if you believe the polygraph at all, that it would support the idea of the whole crew's telling the truth. But on the flip side of it, um, it's all matter of probabilities and statistics. Okay. Um, on, on its best day, the polygraph they claim is about 95% accurate. It's also, uh, in other studies, uh, down to as low as 80% accurate, but it suffers from uh, false positives uh, on the, the side of error. So in, in other words, it's more likely to find somebody um, claim that someone's lying when they're telling the truth than it is to claim someone's telling the truth when they're really lying. Does that make sense? Yeah. So now, on that on that margin of error, um, you have a lot of people going to apply for federal jobs and things like that. And they ask, you know, have you ever used drugs? And you're like, no, I have not. And if that person is naturally apprehensive or thinking about something with drugs or had a bad day, had bad sleep, whatever, it could indicate, yes, you have used drugs. And um, so for me personally, it's not out of the realm of an aberration um, at all, you know, that this, this happened to be an off day or the polygrapher, there's so many factors. Um, but talking statistically, empirically, you got to look at all the other times that were passed and by how much of the crew. So one time, you know, after he's taken them multiple times, yeah. 
um, to me, just even if the polygrapher is on the up and up, it, it, it really doesn't matter too much. You, know, you get someone like me who uh, if 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 you were asked certain questions, I go through this like mental process of uh, zigzagging through everything. Like, have you ever taken drugs? Well, what is a drug is, you know, okay. Is, <laughs> is Excedrin a drug is a, uh, well, okay. I was on morphine when I had my appendix out. That's a drug. Well, you know, illegal drugs, uh, you know, what are we, what are we defining as a drug alcohol? Like, and then suddenly yeah, yeah. if you, once you start spinning out in your brain, then that result is still coming through. <laughs> well, and the, and the thing with, with polygraphs. So what most people don't realize when you sit down, you are told what you're going to be asked you're told beforehand what questions are going to be asked. And then, and I don't know if that happened on this show exactly, the exact question you're going to be asked should be told to you. And I think one of one of Travis's contentions was that they weren't following the protocol on how polygraph should be administered. But um, you're, you're told what they're going to be asked, and, and then you can discuss it with a polygrapher. So you, you're supposed to be able to say, okay, well, you know, and this happened to me in one of my, my questions. When I was in Peru, they give you the coca leaves, right? And and I chewed them for the altitude sickness, but then I found out you can't bring them back to the U.S. So was I chewing an, an illegal drug, <laughs> you know? And so it's like, and that's in your head. And even though you've explained it and you should feel relief from it, you're right. It still psychologically impacts you um, when you've got a breathing tube, you know, galvanic response um, things on your fingers and and blood pressure cuff. I nearly fainted in, in one of my polygraphs. I, I was blacking out and I'm like, this does not look good. Sweat's coming down my face. And um, at any rate, yeah, it, you're supposed to know the questions and then you ask them usually two or three times the same questions and you're not supposed to move at all. So it can produce anxiety in people who are prone to it um, just for test taking. Yeah. Where do you think we are right now on, obviously there's, with with everything coming out in the last couple of years, since the New York Times broke the 2017 story um, about, I guess that was a Tic Tac video, and then we're getting the uh, release of documents just this past uh, spring, that obviously there's a lot of attentions on UFOs or UAPs, although I don't say UAP, I'm sticking with UFO, <laughs> but uh I, for for not just because stop trying to make UAP happen, but I also think it's a way of this is so conspiratorial, but it's a way of them shifting the conversation away right. from UFO to UAP. I don't like it, but but there is a tension. There's a lot of videos people are capturing all the time because we do live in a world where uh, you know, for my own plug, where the paranormal is caught on camera, the what is the balance between skepticism, uh, open-mindedness, and then outright gullibility? You know, how do we get the scientific community weighing in in a serious way without necessarily following every uh, SpaceX launch and drone and Chinese lantern? Yeah. Um, well, for me personally, I've thought a lot about this and and labels and terms and um, I've always said that you shouldn't believe everything you hear, but you shouldn't disbelieve just because you haven't heard it before. And so being skeptical, everyone should be that. Um, we are seeing academia starting to um, 
get more involved in this. You've got, you know, Harvard and, um, uh, you know, some professors there wanting to start projects. You have, in fact, and, and I don't want to be too public about this yet, but in grad school, and I know I've said this before, I'm not going to make a point of it yet, <laughs> but I'm, I'm doing my thesis statement on my master's um, related to, um, you know, uh, what would happen is America, is the world ready if we had extraterrestrial contact? And, and for them and my professors to sign off on it, I was thinking, ah, oh, they're going to be like, that's, that's way out. Why are you doing the university associated with it? But they were fully supportive. And, and so I think we are seeing some of that, but they're like dipping their foot in the water to test it. You know, it's like, is it okay now? Mm-hmm. Can we start, you know, weighing in on these things? And, and I think that is one of the biggest breakthroughs in the last couple of years is that we're starting to have papers written, research done, um, NASA, had this big headline that they'd hired theologians, you know, to see if uh, what would what the public's reaction would be to religion, would that survive, you know? And so, um, but you're not going to see academics, I think, getting into the the nitty gritty as much as like reviewing videos. They, um, you've got people like Mick West and, and the skeptics, like to his credit, Mick, is one of the people who I respect because he does, he's not there just to argue for argument's sake. And I don't know if you followed him at all, but he's thrown out a couple things where I've had a video that he threw out a suggestion. It could have been this and the night vision camera. And I'm like, okay, let's try it. And I tried it yeah. and he was right. And that was the, the famous Jeremy Corbell video, you know, the pyramids. It doesn't mean that these things are not UAPs and not exotic. But I think we have to be honest with ourselves and both sides have to say, look, um, academia, if you are the true experts and you can explain to me cameras and things like that, tell me and then let's try it and, and we'll do the practical portion. We'll meet somewhere in the middle and sometimes we'll agree and sometimes we won't. What, what's it, what are your thoughts on disclosure? What does disclosure look like? I mean, you're a former government guy. Is disclosure going to come from the government or or is it going to be forced forward by the public with with these reports that have been somewhat declassified? Is that the, our government saying, okay, we're going to throw you a couple tidbits and then we're going to close that door again? You got what you needed. Let's move on. I mean, what? Yeah, what is what is disclosure? What I want and what I think is going to happen are two things. You know, like I, I'm pretty pessimistic compared to a lot of people that. I'm on on some email chains um, with you know a lot of people who are in the forefront of this, and there's a lot of excitement that's going to happen this year, a couple months. I really don't think so. Um, if you just think about what do they have to gain, they meaning if they're secret keepers, here's what I do believe: when someone files a FOIA request or the the Office of naval intelligence or the navy pentagon whatever comes out their front office pr person says this is all we have or these are all the reports congress that we've mandated to give you i honestly believe that might be true because i think the front office people and what they have access to is far below where the real stuff the the secret keepers if you will are are keeping the the big roswell secrets and all that and so they could be telling the truth. I think the majority of the military, the government has no clue what's going on. 
and and probably the majority of the presidents you know and so that is frustrating because for them to give disclosure what more are they going to tell you it, it comes down to two two parties them whoever these visitors are and whoever the very very small group of secret keepers who still might be around are and until they decide to do it we don't have the leverage i believe to compel them to do it so we're really left to just to wait on their timeline and and it probably will be drip by drip um to avoid a, a really horrible situation where it freaks out yeah well well we <laughs> we we do know we don't know what's going to be happening with disclosure but we do know that we are getting a second season of ufo witness first season right now is currently streaming on discovery plus uh, do we know anything about when the when we will have a premiere for season two of UFO Witness? And also, is there anything that you can tell us about this upcoming season and tease out and sort of, uh, yeah, how, how are things looking for season two? <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm happy that I can even talk about it because normally when a season two is ordered, we filmed it and then we're sitting on our hands. We can't say anything until the network says something, but... The network was like, let's talk about it. Here it is. They got renewed. It kind of came as a surprise to me. They announced it. Um, so this season, uh, Melissa Tittle, who appeared with me in um, the Hudson Valley, uh, Alien Invasion Hudson Valley, it was like a two-hour special. She joins me as my partner. And, you know, it's really great to have someone to bounce ideas off of because um, this – this first season was the first time I've hosted a show where it's just me, you know, and I, I was kind of feeling like probably Josh Gates does as he's driving around talking to himself. And I'm like, this is cool, but it really does help to cover ground as well when you can split off and she can go interview someone or check something out and then we can meet up. And I will say she does not agree with me on a lot of things, um, which is fine because I think there's a lot of audience who identify with her way of thinking, but um, it's, it's been a lot of fun because we have amped up a lot of the uh, kind of extent to what we'll go to for experimentations um, and, and, and kind of like how we get there. So not to give, you know, too much away, but um, you know, one episode I I've been wanting always to actually get up in the air and not just, you know, throw a drone up. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm flying, you know, a plane that I rented, you know, get up there to, to recreate something. Or um, I, I think the audience will see that a lot of these abduction stories, we really get into talking to the people and the emotional aspects of what, how that's changed their lives and what it means. Right. And so thousands upon thousands of um, people every day, wanting to tell their stories. And we set up just recently um, a website, uh, ufowitness.tv. So even if it doesn't come onto the TV show, people can go there and they could submit their stories because we could use them at the end of season two, season three. Um, as you know, you and I are constantly pitching new shows, you know, and, and, and it, we could even throw some your way because we get these great videos you know, and so you can right on, yeah. paranormal cut on, you know, tape and you get these people just want to tell their stories. And every now and then you have amazing footage to go along with it. And um, so I, I think that it comes at a time, too, during 
the congressional reports that we now have that are mandated to come out every 90 days or was it 90 days? Yeah, I think so. I think so, um, yeah. And, and all this is going to be happening in 2022. It couldn't come at a better time. So premiere date, I honestly don't know. I, we we're still filming the last uh, two episodes right now. And, and then they've got to do post-production. I'm just guessing, and this is not from the network, I'm guessing it won't be earlier than a summer, maybe late summer release. Yeah. It is, uh, and one thing, really just a, um, a, a comment on UFO Witness, what I really enjoy about it is, quite frankly, uh, a lot, as much as I love these stories, a lot of times when a show sets out to investigate sightings, they end up being fairly dry and it's mm. and it's um it, it kind of lacks a little bit of the emotion and human element something i really enjoyed about ufo witness is that there is a believability as well as a drama and a, a personal yeah. human element to it that i really i respect and and without without being that kind of like stale type of ufo show and i, I think well, you know what i you. mean about that do you remember so, you remember back in uh, our sci-fi days the uh, paranormal witness show yes right so what i really loved about that production company is that when you have the person sit down do the talking heads interview but then you do the recreation of it and you can bring in the hollywood elements so mm -hmm. what's different is that instead of a travis walton type embellishment where you're adding things that didn't happen, you can still recreate the emotion and bring the the audience into the seat like like a, a blockbuster movie in these little snippets, but based on the real account. Yeah. And and when you know they invited me to take a look at doing this show, I said I love it. I love it because um, the to to recreate in some people's minds instead of just having the person say yes and then that, this happened in the ship. That's all cool, but if you can use the imagination, you truly understand why this is important. Yeah. You understand these people are going through experiences that are so traumatic sometimes that it's, um, hate to use this comparison, but uh, it, it's, it's almost like the crimes I used to investigate, you know, sexual assaults and, and traumatic things that these people are affected for their lifetime. And you can't ignore that. You can't say, you know, well, all these people are making it up when when something happened to cause them to derail parts of their life, you know, and and so that I think I, I agree with you is a really cool aspect of it. And uh, the, the term UFO witness really encapsulates what we're doing is interviewing witnesses. Yeah. And when that when that uh, finally gets a premiere date, we'll have to have you back over here. But we know it's on the way. We know season two of UFO witness is on the way. We know that the alien abduction, Betty and Barney Hill, and alien abduction, Travis Walton, both those shock docs, those specials launch Friday, February 18th on Discovery+. Plus. Ben, how else can people support your work and just keep track of everything you're doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. My, my website, uh, benhanson.com. Uh, as you know, like the, the events, the public appearances have been kind of sparse. We're hoping that gets ramped up this year to where we're doing more of those and traveling around. Um, but that, that has all the, the upcoming events and, and announcements of when shows are airing. But, um, you know, get involved. If, if, you, if anyone has a, a sighting you think we'd be interested in, an encounter, 
you know, you can submit that at ufowitness.tv and, um, you know, start talking to your neighbors and friends because it is one of those things. It's, it has this political, I'm, I don't consider myself an activist at all. I, I, I feel like, though, this is a, an important subject that we should all be talking about because it does have implications, not for national security, but like things that I think are going to become more important in the future. Most certainly. I, I agree. And um, well, Ben, I, I appreciate you joining me for this. Hang out backstage for a second. I'm going to take you out of this and uh, wrap up here. But it is a pleasure seeing you, my friend, and hearing from you. And really Thank nicely you. nicely done job with these shock docs. And I am looking forward to season two of yes, UFO Witness. And folks, that is yet another Talking Strange. Ben, ben Hansen. Heck of a guy, a guy that I truly respect in this field. He really approaches things with an analytical mindset, and he's a reliable person, and he's just very calm. I like I like how sober he approaches things, which I really appreciate. And thank you guys for listening in. Please give me a follow on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, on Patreon. Watch my interviews at youtube.com slash denofgeekus and download Talking Strange every week on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And keep an eye out for upcoming talks with Dacre Stoker, the descendant of Bram Stoker, to discuss 125 years of Dracula and 100 years of Nosferatu. And we also have down the road the cast of Expedition Bigfoot, as well as more on the way with the cast of CBS's ghost so wherever you guys are be safe stay spooky and keep it weird